Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks very much for joining us this week. Later on in the program, how the Navy is using digital twins and digital threads to change the way it supports its ships. Officials say the new approach will revolutionize the Navy's logistics and maintenance enterprise. Ashley Holloway, the chief architect for the model-based product support program, joins us for that discussion. First up, though, the Army is finding new ways to partner with the communities around its bases. Thanks to a 2015 law that lets the military services sign service agreements with local governments without the pain of traditional federal contracts, the Army has now signed dozens of intergovernmental service agreements for everything from snow removal to animal control. The latest of those agreements happened just last month at Fort Stewart, Georgia. I spoke to two officials there about how IGSAs are making a difference, saving both time and money. Travis Mobley is director of the Plans Analysis and Integration Office, and Colonel Brian Logan is the garrison commander. They spoke with me by video conference from Fort Stewart. Colonel Logan is the first voice you'll hear. We got 66 of them right now across the uh, across the Army, mainly through Incom uh, Installation Management Command. Uh, here at Fort Stewart, we have four specifically that we put in place uh, in 2020. And so uh, the most recent one, and I just walked out of it, stepped into here, is uh, stray animal control. Uh, we just locked that in with our Long County partners uh, right outside the gate. And we did a very similar one. In fact, it was a mirror IGSA with uh, Savannah, Chatham County on the other side, specifically located for Hunter Army Airfield for the same service. Uh, and then about a month ago, we locked in service for uh, grounds maintenance. So much bigger contract here, um, or excuse me, support agreement with uh, the city of Hinesville. And our fourth one, our fourth one is the uh, Georgia Southern. It's an economic impact study. And so one of the big things that we look at here is, you know, how much money do we bring back into the economy, uh, both with Hunter Army Airfield and Fort Stewart. And so we've locked in Georgia Southern uh, to conduct this study for us to one, so we can actually show the taxpayers where all their money is going, how it's uh, impacting the community, uh, and then what our ties are to the local community. So pretty good lay down of the, uh, of the four that we have. The one with Georgia Southern University, that's a little bit of a novel use of an IGSA. I, I've traditionally heard them being used mostly for base support type services. Uh, how, how did you come across the idea of actually using this type of vehicle for an academic, really an academic study? And so... Travis and I sat down. So Travis is uh, is our is our PIO, our plans and uh, integration operations officer. So what we did is Travis and I sat down, and we had uh, honestly we have a need that we we do not communicate effectively with our local partners on on what our economic impact was. We realized that that service was something that was out of our capability here. We have a limited staff here on post, uh, and so that was going to have to be a contract, right? So we were going to have to have an outside partner come in. Um, conduct that study over probably a year or two and, uh, you know, and, and give us the results. And so we looked across and said, hey, can it meet the standard of an ICSA? Uh, therefore, we avoid the contracting timeline, which that would never come into, come into fruition for, you know, several months. we got to look at what FY money we're, we're actually bringing to bear. Uh, and then the third portion was, hey, can we keep it local? Uh, can we utilize something that truly understands an organization that truly understands the impact and maybe is a recipient of federal money, uh, you know, for the local area? Who might, who might not be interested in that? And so we, uh, we looked across and, uh, and Travis said, hey, let's, let's reach out to a couple of 
of, uh, of universities around here, and, and GSU came up. And if it's okay, I, I'd like to ask Travis if I missed anything on that because uh, he did most of the legwork on it. And, you know, he drove that into completion, worked the paperwork, got it approved by DA, and then uh, and then put it into action. Travis, I missed anything? No, sir. Yeah, they have a, um, a business innovation group that deals specifically with research um, and with the local community. They do studies for, say, Gulfstream, other chambers, um, other counties. So what they, they've got the experience. They've got the, the software, proprietary software, and it's their skill set. So they come, they'll come in and take all of our data. We'll work together as a team. And uh, at the end of the day, they'll produce a product, you know, that, that's our corporate partners outside the gates are using. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very valid product versus us just throwing a number on the wall. So we're really looking forward to this one. So kind of to the point that you guys are talking about when, when Congress last updated this law back in 2015, I think really the point was to remove the requirement that, that, these processes work through the federal acquisition regulation and, and make it easier both for installation commanders and for municipal governments to get into this kind of agreement because I think the whole FAR thing was scaring people off, especially on the municipal side. It sounds like that objective has basically worked um, from everything you're saying. You know, so I tell you a couple other things it brings to bear. So, you know, we're looking at uh, one, the ties with the communities. And so if you can keep money local, why not go that way? Uh, so you're bringing employment back up onto the base, back up onto the installation. You're using assets that already exist or services that already exist in the local community just outside our gates. Uh, and if we don't use them, you, you know, you're, you're executing parallel efforts, right? And so when I'm talking to city managers, when I'm talking to mayors, um, when I'm talking to those city officials and we're like, hey, you got a grounds maintenance. How much do you pay for that a year? Well, I, I pay the same thing. Who are you using? Uh, it's just like you and I. You know, if we talk about, you know, who's servicing your uh, your house for, for whatever it may be. Uh, we're comparing contracts, and I tell you what, if we do it together, we're going to save a little bit of money. Uh, and then not only that is the employer is going to save a little bit of money, too, in overhead. Uh, they also get to hire more employees. These are local employees, which brings the ties back to the installation. One of the things that, that we're excited about is, uh, you know, draft legislation for the NDAA saying that, you know, IGSAs is going to be part of a decision criteria for future basing solutions. And so when you look at ties to the community uh, and how the how DOD will decide, you know, how receptive is the local community to entering in intergovernmental service agreements? What capacity do they hold to support installations and to uh, to come into a contractual agreement off post there? You know, bring those pieces back on. Keep the money local. I think that's a that's a step in the right direction, and it strengthens the relationship uh, between you know the uniform wear uh, and our civilians off post. And when we talk about the civ mill divide, uh, that's what you're really knocking down there is that uh, that portion of it. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but did I hear you right that that you're basically saying the more says you have, the less likely you are to get bracked in some future round? That's uh that's. That's not my decision, uh, but it's a uh, that's draft proposal in NDAA that's being looked at that says, hey, uh, you know, as we look at growth or movement of units, IGSAs is a strong piece for the local community on bringing more military units or growing those installations that already exist. So on the more traditional base operating support type services, um, the animal control and maintenance type services, who had been doing that stuff? Was it soldiers or other contracts? 
all the above. And so I'll take the stray animal control. So, uh, you know, we have a military police battalion here uh, in a very small veterinary clinic. Uh, our veterinary clinic uh, is, you know, their main purpose is to take care of military working dogs. Um, that's why they exist. Uh, secondary to that is they take care of our, our family pets here for our military personnel, both on and off post, providing vaccinations, et cetera. Uh, what they don't, what they're not budgeted for, they're not staffed for, is stray animal control. Uh, stray animal policing and so that came out of hide uh, the budget to pay for a stray animal you know an animal control officer we didn't have that that that, that was taken out of hide uh, and we taxed our our military policemen and so our soldiers that are out there that should be should be doing law enforcement duties they're trying to run down stray dogs and cats uh, take them off the off the installation put them in our vet clinic which is not organized to separate stray animals and dogs and cats we have to feed take care of those animals and then hopefully return them to their owners or move them along from an adoption process and you think that that's pretty easy to do right we're talking one and two but just like our civilian counterparts that's a that's a burden uh, it's a burden economically it's a burden by our staff um, and so just taking something simple like that off of our books off of our budgets uh, allowing the staff to focus really on what their job is, putting our MPs back to work, doing law enforcement, not chasing chasing dogs and cats is a uh, is a huge win for us. Yeah, and, and and that's that's kind of a good example of where I wonder does the authorities piece of this ever get complicated? Because that animal control bit that is at least a quasi law enforcement function, and you know a Georgia state peace officer is not going to come on post and enforce the UCMJ. So is is that a complexity here, or am I making more of it than it actually is? I tell you, it's all about it's all about dialogue and relationships. I'll be honest; it's just my opinion. But there's no other there's no better place to be than coastal Georgia. Uh, the relationship that we have with our local counties, all all seven of our counties that border you know, Fort Stewart and Hunter Army Airfield, tremendous support. We have a long-standing relationship. You know that they have an enduring care for our soldiers and family members, and I'm I'm not exaggerating. I think the IGSAs are an example of that. And so the discussion, the discussion and the, uh, the understanding of one another and actually building that IGSA, that memorandum that we both agree on, um, sets the foundation for it. Now, will there be discussion points where, you know, we probably have to have face-to-face? Yeah, but we're all adults and we know who we're dealing with. Uh, this isn't a contract whose higher headquarters is in California or Pennsylvania. Their higher headquarters is the local county uh, government, which is... 25 minutes from my headquarters. I can pick up the phone and talk to the mayor and talk to the city manager and say, hey, I had a problem with the dog catcher today and I'd like you to address it. So those discussions can be held at this level where if this was a service contract in the traditional sense, the bureaucracy and the levels that that would have to go through through an actual official complaint would be, would really wouldn't be worth it at that level. Uh, and those things would get buried. So uh, it goes back to the relationship that we have, and because they're right outside our gate, because they're, you know, we have 80% of our our population that lives in their communities right outside, uh, and so that makes a difference. There are people, we're their people. Hey, and Jared, um, we also like say with the law enforcement side of the house, our our law enforcement still is on every scene. They still take care of the situations. So really, the off the the officer from the county is simply coming on. They're taking the animal, 
and they're leaving the officer there to take care of all that administrative paperwork. So, yeah, the as you mentioned, there's still that divide between the, the federal side and the county. But like I say, we, we're still doing all the in-house law enforcement. That's Travis Mobley, the director of the Plans, Analysis, and Integration Office at Fort Stewart, Georgia. And we're also talking with Colonel Brian Logan, the garrison commander. Short break, and we will come back and talk more about the Army's recent upsurge in intergovernmental service agreements in just a few minutes on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Servin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue our conversation with Travis Mobley, the director of the Plans, Analysis, and Integration Office at Fort Stewart, Georgia, and Colonel Brian Logan, the garrison commander, talking about intergovernmental service agreements. The Army is using more and more of them, and the newest was signed at Fort Stewart just last month. Talk a little bit in, in specifics, if you can, about the benefits that you've seen from the IGSAs that you put in place, and, and, and by that I mean financial and non-financial. Sure, I'm happy to on that one. So looking across today, you know, Travis and I sat down as we looked at some talking points for, uh, you know, for going into this last one was, you know, where are we at on, on, on our tab, right? So what's the budget look like? How much are we saving across the board? Uh, and so when you look at, you know, over the, over the span of cost avoidance uh, as well as actual costs, whether it's contracting costs, whether, and then I look at timelines too, right? And number of, uh, of work hours that's involved in conducting an actual contracting process, um, panel, decision, awarding, et cetera. Uh, so we're looking at about $2.2 million with these four. $2.2 million with these four, contra- with these four ICSAs, excuse me, um, that uh, Fort Stewart Hunter Army Airfield has, uh, has saved. Uh, and that's just the budgetary piece. Um, when you look at the non- the, you know, the non-financial piece, you know, what are our savings? I think it goes back to relationships and ease of, uh, of execution, um, just as we talked about earlier. So we'll, we'll talk in the grounds maintenance piece. Uh, city of Hinesville, literally right out, like you cross gate one, you're in the city of Hinesville. I speak to the city manager and or the mayor probably once a week in some form of another. We know majority of the individuals that are on that grounds maintenance team. They've worked on Fort Stewart before. They are very familiar with our access procedures. They know the lay of the land. They understand what's required for a military installation care. Uh, and so when we see something that might be a little askew, uh, that, hey, can you, let's make an adjustment. Can we cut the parade grounds on Tuesday as opposed to Thursday? It's a phone call. It's not the bureaucracy that we would deal with in dealing with a union contract and dealing with a, uh, a subcontract from another organization. Uh, truly the ease of the work, uh, and, and it all goes back to relationships and understanding of who's, uh, who's actually working those pieces. So that's why I'm a huge fan of it. Not only the money piece, but it goes back to the relationships and ease of execution. Well, one thing I wonder is, is the reason that this works so well for a place like Fort Stewart kind of a sizing issue, by which I mean, you guys are kind of a medium-sized base paired up against a medium-sized municipal government. And I'm guessing you know, it just doesn't work as well if you're a giant base with a, with a tiny town outside the gate. You're not going to do this at Fort Irwin. Well, I, I think there's, there's great potential out there. Um, so I'll let, let you in on a little secret. So my, uh, my brother-in-law is actually the garrison commander of Fort Polk. 
And, uh, and so he, uh, it, you know, it's a competition every day, right? And so especially during the holidays when we see each other. But right now he leads, uh, he leads us by two Ixes. Uh, Fort Polk, a little, a much different mission, uh, mission set. You know, we're, we're a force comm base uh, organization with deployable units. He's got one deployable brigade over there, and, and his station, he's really a training center. Um, but the numbers right offhand, you know, look at the capacity of Hinesville versus Leesville uh, right outside the gate. And then, obviously, we have Savannah. And so Savannah and the work pool, the, the work capacity here, I'd say is a little bit greater than what he may have over there. But he's taken base operations, uh, and so what we call O&M bases, so um, – the day-to-day fix-it programs that you have on an installation or infrastructure piece. Uh, he's taken those and turned aspects of that contract into IGSA programs. Uh, and so we have we have mirrored some of those, you know, with the ground maintenance piece, right? So I think the capacity is there. You're right. You have to have the workforce and the ability of those organizations right off post to support it. Uh, Fort Irwin, that's uh, a little challenging because uh, 34 miles to Barstow, small work population, uh, but there's other there's other opportunities, and I think the GSU IGSA could be an example of that. Uh, so thinking out of the box on a requirement that an installation may need, it may be an enduring requirement. It, it's not necessarily a short-term one, uh, but one that could benefit the local community. It could be a recycling program, uh, which is something that we're also looking into right now. Uh, we have water tower maintenance uh, that we're looking into as well. And so I, I think those are good examples that you could use out at Fort Irwin. Taking those habitual maintenance contracts, looking at who does it for the city of Barstow, uh, and then making an agreement with that and then bringing them on onto post. As you guys were first starting to look at this, this concept, how much help did you get or did you need from HQDA, from MCOM, or, or are they just so dead simple that you could do the whole thing at a local level? So we did have a, uh, as we started looking at opportunities with the city of Hinesville, particularly our grounds maintenance piece, we did have uh, the G9, Army G9 uh, office come down. Uh, and they came down, they did a, a work group with uh, the city of Hinesville, local communities, obviously us, and, uh, and worked us through some examples. Uh, the regulations required an exit, so what needs to be set in place, you know, what capacities do you have, you're not going to sign up a mom and pop shop for a seven million dollar grounds maintenance if you don't have any mowers right uh, and, and so just understanding the basics of what needs to be in place and then examples of exist and then we kind of went through a few brainstorming sessions um so we did have some help uh from from uh, from da uh but really we we came up with the the team here led by travis and uh a few other of the directorates uh, the, they really came up with the brainstorming piece, um, and it was done in conjunction with the, the local counties. Uh, so local counties officials asking, hey, what about a, um, a community center, a community event center? You know, that was discussed. And so uh, we look for opportunities because, you know, they want to use half of a center. We want to use a center. Uh, we're going through, you know, is that an MWR contract that we could put down uh, where we could bring in events and put it off post? Uh, they share in the uh, in the rewards for that. Since 80% of our population lives off post, maybe that's a better opportunity for them where they don't have to come through. Uh, they can bring their friends and families. They can go to that event off post. 
sponsored by us, held by us, but the local community uh, provides that support for it. So we discuss things like that and open with a little bit of guidance from G9. And uh, it's one of those other times I'd reach out for a lifeline. But Travis did, did prior to me, you know, was there any other education or, or forces that came down for that piece? No, sir. That was kind of the the Army, uh, the G9 office, and the M Installation Management Command office. They shared a joint contract where, like you said, they came down and helped guide us. And then they had a uh, the Installation Management Command had a uh, a small cell that would work with various installations. And we were fortunate to be part of their group. And so they kind of we were able to have a constant open communication. We spoke every week. And as the Colonel mentioned, we had brainstorming sessions internal to the the garrison and then they would uh, that that MCOM or G9 partner at the higher level would help us kind of steer us in the right direction here's the legislation you know here's the, here's the you know the memorandums that you need to do cost benefits analysis uh, they, they kind of got us in the walk until we started crawling and then now we're basically up and running so without their support it would have been very difficult and I imagine a lot of installations are really challenged to kind of put a foot forward because they, they don't know, you know, we don't know what's, what opportunities are out there. This is like Colonel mentioned, it's another mechanism to deliver in the same service, but at a, you know, a, an efficiency or a reduced price with also keeping things local. So yeah, they're, they're definitely a helpful tool for us. Travis Mobley is the director of the Plans, Analysis, and Integration Office at Fort Stewart and Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia. And Colonel Brian Logan, the garrison commander, is also with us. One more break, and we'll wrap up our conversation on how Fort Stewart is using intergovernmental support agreements with local communities. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we finish up our conversation with Colonel Brian Logan, the installation commander at Fort Stewart, Georgia, we're talking about how the military services can use intergovernmental support agreements in lieu of contracts to handle critical services on their bases. As we've been hearing, Colonel Logan is a big fan of IGSAs. And this one's kind of out of left field, but Colonel, earlier when, when you were talking about the, the benefits of that kind of one-to-one de-bureaucratized relationship, the thing that popped into my head is like the area where that could be incredibly helpful seems to me is privatized housing. That's, that's probably not going to happen because the contracts are all laid down. But could you see an IGSA working for something like that, of, of, of that importance at that scale? You know, I, I think it's worth exploring. Uh, I think the Army has gone with several variations of, uh, of housing, um, whether that be our, our partners like BBC, which we have here, Balfour Beatty Communities, or, you know, government-prioritized housing. And so uh, an example, uh, and some of these are actually in Oconus. And so you have designated homes, uh, designated houses that are off post, and uh, and those are not necessary. They're not managed. They're not leased by by military, uh, but we there are partners. Uh, and so if you come on post and you say, hey, you know what? Maybe this fits for my family, uh, my family situation. Whether it's schools, whether it's lifestyle, whatever the case may be, I'd like to live off post. Uh, we have that. Th- we have those facilities that are available apartment style or particular houses that are designated for you based on an overarching po- contract where your BAH, your basic allowance for housing, goes directly to that just as if you would on post, but those aren't managed necessarily by BBC or by our local housing communities. 
I, I think that's a great thing to, to explore. I know that several um, several installations are looking for increasing uh, our housing numbers just because of of where they're at. And I'll just say my, my brother's over in Fort Gordon uh, looking at opportunities to replicate a few things that we have here. Uh, so we have Marn Point. Marn Point is a unaccompanied apartment complex, if you will, but right in the middle of the post. Now that is actually owned, managed. Uh, that's part of the program by BBC. But as it, Fort Gordon looks much transient, uh, a different population, transient with the schoolhouse there, uh, Cyber Center of Excellence, they're, you know, their guys are coming in and out only for six months, nine months. That might be something that would work for an ICSA uh, opportunity, uh, and I think that might do well. Uh, but it is definitely something to explore into. You've been real generous with your time. I won't keep you much longer, but but I figured I'd wrap up here by by just asking, you know, if, if there's an installation commander out there listening to this who has never done an IGSA before, what would you tell them are the first things they need to be thinking about or, or gotchas to watch out for as they start putting their first IGSA in place? Hey, sure. First, I'd, I'd start off with, uh, with relationships. Like any contract, memorandum of agreement, any type of... Uh, of set that you're, you're sitting down at the table is you got to know who your partner is. Um, and so understanding what their capabilities are, uh, understanding what their capacities are, you know, the big piece is when the government comes to a negotiation or a contract piece, or, Hey, I have an opportunity to partner with the government. Um, there's a lot of people out there that, that see money, uh, they see opportunity. Uh, and sometimes, you know, they overplay their hand. Um, and so you got to make sure the proof is in the pudding. Uh, and so if you're talking about a support agreement that obviously they're all important, but, uh, Hey, th this, these are no fail, no fail opportunities. Um, and if you don't have enough mowers, if you can't hire enough employees, if you don't have a proven track record, uh, then that's probably not the right bet. Um, and I think that comes from your relationships and it starts with a handshake. It starts with, uh, office calls. Uh, and then it starts with staff work. And, uh, and some of these take uh, a year. Some of these take about three years to get through. Uh, but you'll do all your homework in that piece. And, uh, and then I, I think it's a, great, it's a great end state. Things to watch out for. Uh, again, I, I think it goes back to just understanding your partner and making sure that those services that you want to push out or, or provide an opportunity for your, uh, for your partners to take is... Uh, is something you're worth doing and so uh, we're not going to contract out hospital programs we're not going to construct you know our uh, our vehicle maintenance pieces uh but maybe something in the future if something comes up but those are those are inherently army army uh army positions appropriated funds uh for those pieces and so uh, we're going to look to retain those and then obviously if you have any questions always ask a lawyer you know it says uh i think it it scares a few people and um it either scares them or they're too bored about it and they don't want to talk about it. But I think it's a great opportunity for uh, for our installations out there to to really look back and see how they tie in with the local community. Um, I think it's a great bridging asset and one we will uh, we will continue to look for opportunities out there in the future. Colonel Brian Logan is the garrison commander at Fort Stewart and Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia. We also heard from Travis Mobley, the director of plans, analysis, and integration at Fort Stewart. He's the local expert there on intergovernmental support agreements. One more break, and when we come back, how the Navy plans to use digital threads and digital twins to revolutionize its ship maintenance enterprise. This is on DOD, on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio. 
back on Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbio. The Navy is in the process of replacing eight of the logistics IT systems it uses to maintain ships with a single solution. And officials say it's not just an incremental upgrade. It'll revolutionize the process by building new digital threads that string throughout each ship's life cycle. The bulk of the new model-based product support program rests on a new contract the Navy awarded this summer to PTC. Ashley Holloway is the chief architect for the model-based product support program, and Jim Heppelman is PTC's president and CEO. They talked with me about how the new approach will change things. It's using the digital model of the ship that was used to manufacture the ship as the way to understand the ship for purposes of operating it and servicing it. So, for example, let's say somewhere in the middle of a, of a ship, there's a pump that has a problem. Well, I need information about that pump, but which pump is it? So here I would go, I'd pick the ship, I'd look at the model, I'd locate, I'd navigate online into the right location in the model. I would see that there's three pumps and it's the middle one I want. And now I've got the information about the life cycle and the, and the uh, service repair instructions and so forth for that pump. And I completely understand it because I'm navigating the digital twin and comparing it to the physical reality I'm in, you know, as a way to get to the right information. Across the fleet, how many vessels are there where we have models that are of sufficient fidelity to actually be useful? So that one's a a tough question. Um, So a lot of the the contracts today, Jared, um, have traditionally been on delivering what we call the technical data package Mm -hmm. to the government in a PDF type format uh, or, or generally 2D. Um, so the transition is also happening on the acquisition side, which is also a component of our program to now make sure that we're getting delivery of the 3D data so that we would have that representation um, across the fleet and across those ships. So that is also a shift that's happening with the delivery of that to the government, to the Navy, so that we can do that maintenance and sustainment um, pieces that, uh, that Jim's talking about. So that's a, a transition also from what we get today as far as delivery and what we're getting in the future. I couldn't tell you, you know, specifically how many uh, uh, today. I don't have all that data because that's, you know, each program within the Navy that builds ships, um, there's tons and tons of contracts. I can tell you the ones that I'm familiar with, um, with, you know, some radar programs um, specifically uh, that are that have moved to a, a digital uh, delivery and some of the um, newer uh, submarine classes are moving to digital delivery as well. Um, but outside of that, you know, everything is kind of program specific, um, but that is a big movement uh, for, for NAFC. So it sounds like the things we have models of today are, are mostly subsystems, not entire holes with everything on board. Correct, correct. So we have subsystem data, but but what we're doing as part of this transformation is using some of the, some of the 2D data that we do have to actually transform that into a, a, some type of digital representation. So there's a lot of work that, you know, if, if for example, those subsystems, um, we can piece together to build some type of system model to, to begin our starting point. Um, those are also efforts that are going on within each of the individual uh, programs. Yeah, and, and Jared, maybe I'd just add to that. The concept of uh, computer-aided design in three dimensions was actually pioneered by PTC more than three decades ago. And so, uh, almost everything created in the last 10 years has a 3D model and most of what was created in the last, let's say the last 20 years has a 3D model. The key thing though is, does the Navy have them all? So 
part of what uh, Ashley was just saying is the Navy wants to say from now on, anytime you give us a system, a physical system, give us the digital models of that physical system as well, because you use those models to create the system. We want to use it to sustain the system, support the system. But based on that, it sounds like if what Jim's saying is right, the, the models exist out there. The Navy just doesn't have rights to them. It, the Navy could theoretically go negotiate for those data rights if it wanted to, right? Theoretically, yes. Um, but there's a cost to all those decisions, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think what I understand, Ashley, confirm me if I'm uh, right or not, is uh, on a go-forward basis, you're absolutely requiring this. The question is what to do going backwards, you know, how, how many. Yeah, so, yeah, with any transformation, you always have the, the the folks or the programs you still have to support that are legacy, that we call like legacy grandfathered in, that may not have an opportunity to, one, negotiate um, data rights for that. Um, and so we have to figure out, you know, how do we, how do they best use the technology with the data that they, that they have? Um, going forward, yes, the, the requirement to uh, get that 3D data delivery, again, which is, which is a component of, model-based product support, and we call that our Navy Data Acquisition Requirements Tool, is building um, that piece of, now I'm going to be able to ask the questions um, from, you know, and having the government understand what those trade-offs are and, and what we need in order to do that full sustainment of either that subsystem, the ship going forward, and, and making sure that the right language is in the statement of works and any of the contracting acquisition documentation that goes out for any type of new acquisition. And w when you're working on models, are, are the things you're modeling mostly just the physical assets that need to be maintained and sustained? Or, or are you in some way also modeling the, the supply chain, the logistics chain that gets parts to where they need to go? Does that, that question make sense? Yes, we're actually doing both. So you you would start with that um, 3D CAD, um, as Jim mentioned, engineering representation. But the other capability we have is that we're going to basically, and we call it, we like to call it digital thread. Um, we use that engineering design to then further add on maintenance tasks that would need to be performed, and then also looking at the supply chain, adding in. Hey, I'm going to have, you know, based on my, we call it a maintenance strategy. So based on the maintenance strategy, um, how many uh, intermediate maintenance facilities am I going to have? Um, how many uh, pieces of parts am I going to keep on ship? Are those consumables? Um, what are my um, long lead time items from a supply perspective? Um, and so another tool that we use, um, there's actually two other tools. Um, one is another PDC product called Windshield Risk and Reliability, which looks at the actual tuning of each individual system or subsystem and then you take that and you build basically a ship model to then to your point look at the supply chain and the missions that need to be performed by the fleet and what is the best strategy in order to do that uh, in order to maintain an operational availability how if at all do you think this fits in with predictive maintenance and, and getting you pushed in that direction oh huge uh huge uh, leap forward in predictive maintenance um you know Typically, you know, with, without these tools being in place and having some of this data at hand, uh, a lot of the things have been more reactive um, and, you know, more of a corrective maintenance versus being able to, you know, predict some of those things. Um, so with modeling the, the supply chain and getting some actual data back, there's a whole other effort in the in NAPC swim lane that's uh, looking at condition-based maintenance. And a lot of the systems today are more of a, what they call self-reporting. So we're getting, you know, 
uh, things that are out of tolerance or out of thresholds, um, being able to get that data self-reporting from the, the actual systems on the board ship to be able to feed into the models and say, hey, you know, we're getting this reading. Um, you know, here are some potential um, potential maintenance activities um, that, say, a fleet commander or um, a maintenance chief would then look at and say, potentially, these are some maintenance action I may want to perform or prioritize maintenance based on whatever the mission is. So I think this puts us in a, a good position to be able to provide that information and that data to help, again, keep our operational availability up and, and keep our readiness levels up uh, for the fleet. What, what, what's the secret sauce in this particular cloud product? I mean, I'm sure it's more than just an infrastructure platform where the, where the models live. What does is, what is the cloud offering actually do? I'll, I'll take a stab at that. Maybe you can compliment me on this one, Ashley. Um, you know, first of all, it's a vertical application that understands that each ship is going to have a different configuration. And it understands how to give you the structure of the ship, uh, both as kind of a, let's call it like an indented bill of material type view where you'd navigate down to a radar system, but it's also maintaining the 3D in parallel. So you could either navigate by entering the room where the, nav where the radar system is or by following a system structure down to the point where the radar system is. And either way, you'd see the 3D depiction of the radar system and then attach to it you know, all the documentation uh, and procedures and, and other forms of data that would be necessary to operate and sustain the thing. Um, so it's really a vertical application on a horizontal infrastructure. We, PTC, are providing a turnkey solution, but we're using COTS cloud infrastructure, but providing a FedRAMP compliance solution to the Navy, you know, a highly secure FedRAMP solution, so that they can use this commercial software in their security, according to their security standards, to solve this problem without having to develop a whole big system themselves to do it. And Jared, um, you know, uh, read your background, so I'm sure you're you're familiar with some of the the Navy policies that have been in play for a while. With uh, trying to move to the cloud, uh, cloud first policy came out a couple of years ago. So we've been trying to move, you know, to getting out of the business where we're maintaining, you know, data centers, um, hardware, uh, you know, buying and maintaining the hardware. Um, so we're trying to minimize that footprint uh, holistically, you know, moving to cloud-based solutions where the ownership, as Jim mentioned, for, you know, the cybersecurity pieces, um, the, the the vertical infrastructure that's put together, that's no longer necessarily a responsibility to Navy where we can focus now on, you know, the mission and making sure that we are um, looking at deploying and building ships, um, making sure that those things are sustainable. We are, you know, ready uh, in, in a readiness state and, and, and improving our overall uh, cyber posture. So, you know, that's been a big, big push going forward with, you know, trying to shift away from doing um, some of those IT tasks that we've done holistically across the board, shifting that to, again, a big push with the commercial industry, you know, um, you know, companies like, you know, PTC that have, you know, uh, expertise uh, in, in managing, you know, the infrastructure for us uh, and us focusing on more of the requirements, functional, functional aspects. And I'm also just trying to get a sense of the, the maturity of this overall effort. Is this, is this a pilot OTA type of thing, or did you go out full and open RFP and this is a multi-year contract? How's this, how's this actually work? 
So for just the, the partnership with, with PTC um, in reference in relationship to you know most of uh, what we've been discussing today, that was a that comp- that was not a, a full and open competition. We we went with the sole source uh, opportunity on that just because of the the prior history with PTC and the uh, opportunity uh, with utilizing uh, a large majority of the COT solutions based on where we are today with requirements. Um, holistically for the model-based product support effort that was done via an OTA, Other Transactional Authority, um, which has been a conglomerate of uh, Accenture Federal Services, which is our integrator. Um, we have PTC uh, as part of that team, um, as well as some other non-traditional companies uh, such as Beast Code, uh, Anarch, uh, GPSL. Uh, that's part of the whole team looking at the um, configuration um, and development of the overall effort. And this, actually, this is really just a NAVC effort for now, or does it span multiple syscoms? So right now, the model-based product support uh, effort is NAVC. However, there is a larger effort um, within um, Department of Navy, uh, DASN, uh, R&D. Um, we have, for, for just the logistics portfolio um, specifically, so we're looking at uh, NAVAIR uh, is the other big player in the product lifecycle management uh, support support area. Um, so there is efforts to to single up and to to utilize uh, kind of one solution if we can get there is the desire. We always know how things come up with them when when DASN or OpNav wants you to do the the one thing. Sometimes it's not technically you know feasible, but there is a desire to you know utilize uh, the solution across across the syscoms where it makes sense. Jim, what what, what was the kind of commercial use cases for Windchill before you sold to the Navy? Uh, really, it has historically been about organizing model-based engineering and manufacturing. And then, you know, that's kind of where the idea started for product lifecycle management. PTC had pushed this idea. You know, it's product lifecycle management, so it should include sustainment as well. So certainly we had pushed this idea in our commercial settings down into the service and support arena. Let, let's say you're talking about Caterpillar. The models that are used to engineer a bulldozer could be used to manufacture it, could be used to support it. So that would be already typical of something we do in a commercial arena. And then really bringing this into the DOD arena and the Navy, it's it's uh, quite a breakthrough to modernize these practices because today it's really it's really many different legacy systems, many different documentation systems and so forth. And, and none of it really is organized in a logical way according to the ship. Right. So here we're talking about replacing many legacy systems with a commercial system and the Navy working kind of in the in the same best in class way that industry would work. Ashley, do you have a target for how long it might nominally take to sunset some of those legacy systems Jim mentioned? Uh, Yes. So we're targeting at the end of FY21 for sunset. Oh, wow. How many many systems would that be off the top of your head? You know, let me let me count them out in my head so I make sure I don't miss any. (laughs) (laughs) We have eight. Jared, I would say probably um, back to your question about this, the syscoms, um, I would say holistically, there's an effort across uh, across the board to look at, you know, requirements that span the syscoms, you know, maritime and, and aviation, uh, and looking for, you know, solutions that, that complement each other versus, you know, us continuing to stand up siloed, you know, different IT solutions. That's part of the whole uh, SIM to Stern effort with trying to, to minimize duplication, specifically in the IT area, uh, and do more of the consolidation and uh, looking at the requirements holistically for the best solution. 
Ashley Holloway is the chief architect for the model-based product support program, and Jim Heppelman is PTC's president and CEO. We'll post more information about the new contract to PTC at federalnewsnetwork.com. Earlier in the hour, we talked with officials at Fort Stewart, Georgia, about how they've been using intergovernmental support agreements to save time and money. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's full program, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. You can also hear us in podcast form. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbid. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.